Hey, Tim. Hey, Caitlin. How you going? Oh, doing all right. That's good. Back again. Here we are. Round two. <laughs> Round two. Yeah. yeah. So we've got a, a like a big week coming up. Yeah. Assange. Yeah. Assange is facing what may be his final trial in the UK before extradition or hopefully not before extradition. Uh, there could be some miracle always holding out for a miracle that the case is thrown out and uh, he walks free. And, it, you know, it could happen. It should happen, obviously. But it also, you know, it's really damaging to the United States, to its image. It's entirely possible that the United States and the UK could come to an agreement. Let's just let's just cancel it here. And it seems like that Australia is finally putting some pressure on. It's weak. It's a weak source. I'm not saying it's <laughs> strong for Australia though. Strong for Australia, yeah. Strong for the for the Imperial lapdog. A majority of the Australian Parliament voted to request that charges against Julian Assange be dropped and that he be allowed to return home here to Australia. So it was something like 86 to 42 or something, mm. which is a strong showing because there was definitely uh, zero movement. You know, even up to October of last year, remember our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, he actually was all fitted out to go and see Mr. Biden and had a bit of leverage because we had indulged the Americans by swapping our submarine deal from France to the Yanks at great expense to ourselves uh, and with zero benefits to us. So we thought, we hoped that Anthony Albanese would go over there and say, well, hang on, you know, we scratched your back. How about you scratch ours? But apparently he didn't say a thing. So that was just in October of last year. God, October of last year feels like forever ago. It does. That's true. <laughs> it's been a long fucking four months. <laughs> right. A lot has changed. I think a lot of eyes have opened. Mm. That is my hope. The Empire knows it has a lot of critical eyes on it. It doesn't need one more fucking thing. Right. Maybe this is important enough. Maybe crucifying a journalist. I mean, they, the thing is, they've already done such horrible things to him. They've mm. already stolen how many years of his life. Over a decade. In, yeah, in, in both the embassy and then in Belmarsh. So... They've already made an example of him and shown what they'll do to you if you report unauthorized facts about the U.S. empire. So they might just be content with that. You know, they were content to slap the shit out of Manning for a little while and then they were like, that's enough. Yeah. This is this, this starts a, like to hurt he, our image after a while. That's right. It's a head on a stake type thing, you know, that they might consider that they have sufficiently enough destroyed WikiLeaks and the idea of WikiLeaks right? and ruined the man. I think that was important to them because he is something of an amazing being, Mr. Mm. Assange. Like he really does have an incredible mind that was fantastic at compiling all the facts that were leaked to him. He was WikiLeaks in many, many respects. He knew where all the bodies were buried. Mm. And particularly when he was on Twitter, like when he was online, he was even more trouble to them than perhaps the leaks were. Because in general, you know, the general public is not that interested in 
in Xerox journalism, you know, right. it tends to kind of receive these leaks in a, oh, well, yeah, we all knew that sort of offhand sort of way. It can be reasonably easy to dull down the impact of a leak. But when you have someone as kind of charismatic as Assange with the ability to tell the story the way that he could mm. um, with all the facts at his fingertips, that, that is a real problem for right. the, the empire. And I think they may decide that they have rid themselves of that problem. Right. I mean. Without actually yeah, putting without, him away. Without actually having to, to do the thing that everyone is, is terrified that they'll do, which would cause international outcry and everything. Just the this long, drawn out, excruciating process where they've kept him locked up for 12 years, you know. It does right. track, doesn't it? This is how the Empire does things. They operate in the margins. They yeah. do these weird finagling manipulations without really stepping out into the light, usually. There's, yeah. always, there's, there's sometimes the Iraq invasions and stuff, but usually they prefer to keep their nice guy face, their nice guy mask intact. And already anyone who wants to reveal inconvenient facts about the empire anyone who wants to publish leaked documents from the pentagon or wherever now has to ask themselves am i willing to not see my children for 12 years yeah am i willing to trade this am right. i willing to not see my wife for 12 years am i willing to sacrifice all of that for this one thing and that'll weed out most of the inconvenient reporters. Absolutely. Almost all of them. Yeah. We see how they've treated Daniel Hale and Edward Snowden, whistleblowers and leakers and journalists who really step out into the light. Yeah, I think, I think, I think a, an example has been made. Mm. So that may be enough for them. And, you know, honestly, I, I hope it is. Like I hope that Stella gets her husband back and the kids get their dad. Yeah. He's done so much yeah. for the world and for humanity. He never has to do another fucking thing, honestly. Yeah. No, yeah. He's he's done his work. And and still WikiLeaks is still a wonderful treasure trove of, of documents. Yeah. That's still around. People generally don't leak to it anymore. Or at all. <laughs> Yeah, or, or at all, yeah. yeah. The only uh, leaks we hear now are those fake ones, you know, where they... Hey, guess what? We have some secret insider information from the CIA. We just <laughs> obtained it somehow. Yeah. Turns out Russia's very, very bad. Bad <laughs> Russia, bad. Also China and Iran. <laughs> you guys, you guys, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> the secrets I know. You wouldn't believe this leak I got. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's mostly of that variety and mostly is is totally fine to go through the New York Times or the Washington Post. Well, that was one of the most annoying things. I mean, there was so many annoying things about um, Assange and, you know, his struggle and everything. But uh, people would say, during the 2016 election, when he was causing a lot of problems with the Podesta emails, why don't you leak about Trump? <laughs> why don't you <laughs> leak about Trump? <laughs> why aren't you printing out Trump information? <laughs> As though he's like in the, in the computers hacking it. Oh, or omniscient or something. Like, you know, he can just... And like... as though leakers aren't going to all these other outlets constantly, both before and after the election. And getting paid money for it. And like, you know, kudos and everything. And usually not even having to hide themselves. That's mm. not... That, that wasn't the purpose of WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks was a very important information. That the powerful didn't want didn't revealed. Want you to, like actual journalism. That actually benefited from anonymity. Uh, not made up.
up dossiers about peeing Russian prostitutes and right. stuff like. Not a lot of critical thinking going on. No. By de- design. Not a, yeah, by design at the time. And, yeah, there was a lot of uh, mindless repeating of just lines. There was all sorts of angles on Assange at that time to smear his character. And it's important not to forget that. It's important not to forget that for years these fucking bastards Mm. smeared him so aggressively. Yeah. Unforgivably, these fucking members of the press, these ostensibly journalists. Yeah. Doing everything they can to fucking James Ball. Mm, that little turd. Every excuse they could make to spin this guy in some sort of way and crucify his image and make people feel he's untrustworthy and it would actually be fine if he was dragged out of that embassy by force. Right, yep. They did. They worked every angle. Once it actually happened, they all shut the fuck up. Yeah. Well, because a lot of them were saying, oh, he can just walk out of there anytime he wants, anytime right. he wants. So that kind of ruined that story because a lot of, yeah, we also have to remember that Assange knew this was coming and that was why he was in the embassy. He was there because he knew that the Americans had decided that they were going to make an example of him and that they were wanted to extradite him. And that was in play and in process. There were documents. He knew that. It but was everyone the, was pretending. It was like Israel's nukes. It was one of those things everyone knows is happening, but they pretend they don't know. Right, because it was not convenient to the, the Smearmeisters that he should be actually doing something upstanding and that was in everyone's interest, in the highest interest of journalists. No, they just pretended he was hiding away, enjoying a pleasant holiday in, in this luxurious embassy right, yeah. <laughs> to avoid rape charges. Rape charges, yeah, which was just such a... Oh, and when you went down that rabbit hole, there was nothing after nothing after nothing about that. Like, anyway... I get a little upset, but we did, (laughs) we wrote our own dossier on uh, the Assange smears where we addressed every single one of them. Five years ago now, almost. Yeah. There was something like 38 or something smears, 38 angles that we we encountered regularly. Yeah. And we had research and so we could debunk them clearly. Yeah. I think it's just called debunking all the Assange smears. If anyone wants to look at that in in the coming days... Maybe it'll be useful to you. Yeah. A lot of it's obsolete now because all the Smearmeisters shut down and are keeping their heads real low now. Right, yeah. But it's good to have like a refresher because there are still people, a lot of people out there who this is not important to them. Actually, my daughter was handing flyers out at Flinders Street Station. Proud mama. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just, just I'll just, I'll just drop that little humble brag. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> handing out Assange flyers. Yeah, and um, she said that at least one guy came up to her and said, "Is he still in jail?" I couldn't believe it. Yeah, they sort and of didn't really believe it when she said yes. <laughs> right, they just, they, they just sort of assumed that it would have resolved itself, and if it hadn't, it would have been like a big story. Yeah, they would have known about it. It would have been in the papers. Mm. Of course, it's not going to be in the papers. Uh, not in Australia. Like, not not to the extent it should be anyway. Well, it's such a closed shop here. It's such a little, little stinky club. The media here is worse than in the States. Yeah. It's this duopoly of Murdoch and the sort of liberally Murdoch. Right. <laughs> they, uh, they own all the press except for like the BBC, which is also hor- the BBC, the ABC, which is also horrible. It's just the Australian BBC. 
Right, yeah. There, there are some true believers still in the ABC, but that's about it. Mm. it. You know, they fight the fight, but generally it's a real club. Yeah, and they can't fight the fight too hard or they get fired like that lady. Yeah, Latouf. Who got fired for retweeting a Human Rights Watch article about Palestine and, and Israeli apartheid or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It was, I think it was just facts about how many people had been killed. Like. <laughs> It was nothing. I fucking believe it. They fired her and they said they fired her for that. Yeah. They admitted to it they to, to her face. Yeah. With no commentary. Just retweeted a Human Rights Watch article, like this really mainstream, generally pretty pro-empire right. bias. But uh, because it said some inconvenient facts, indisputable facts about what Israel was doing. Yeah. In a lot of ways, we still act like a country town. It's all about who your mates are and, and everyone knows everyone. So, you know, except us. <laughs> mm, yeah. We don't know we, anybody. We've made no, <laughs> no. We actively avoid making connections. <laughs> right. We went to an MAAA drinks once. Yeah. Just sort of awkward for everyone. Yeah. We talked to Helen <laughs> Razor again because she's awesome. We but, like her. <laughs> Anyway, so that is coming up. So our Wednesday, Thursday and everyone else's Tuesday, Wednesday. Mm. We will be following. My heart will be beating out of my mouth again. Yeah. Remember? Remember that beautiful moment though? Sometimes you have a beautiful moment and just like it keeps you going. No extradition. Mary Costakitas, she was listening in. Oh yeah, one of the the, the case where the judge said uh, no yeah, no extradition because of mental health concerns, concerns or something. Yeah. So that was actually back at the magistrate's court. I think. Yeah. And that then was, that was overturned. Yeah. And then that was overturned. In a rather anticlimactic fashion. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, we did have a moment. Yeah. Um, they decided he hadn't paid quite enough yet. Yeah. Well, maybe he has paid now. <sighs> God, they're such sick fucks. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So what about some questions, Timothy? Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. We asked Twitter for some questions to answer on our podcast. The most common question that came up from a lot of people said, um, you have a podcast? <laughs> what is it called? Where can I find it? Where is this podcast? Well, you've obviously found it if you're listening to this. So yeah. This is probably not information... If you are hearing this, you probably don't really know, need to know. Okay, but if they, oh, wanna, yeah, they no. might, they oh, might have found the it on Substack or something. Type things. Oh, yeah, so yes. where, what are the, where can they find it if they want to like subscribe to it or, or anything? Well, Spotify, all the right? usual places, yeah. It's on everything. Uh, Spotify. I think Google Podcasts, YouTube Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. Um, Substack has its own podcast, SoundCloud. We're right. on Stitcher, whatever that is. <laughs> uh Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think you can pretty much find it anywhere. I don't actually know how to change the name from, from Going Rogue. I mean, I've changed it on all the kind of superficial ways, but often if you plug in Going Rogue, Caitlin Johnston. It might come up. It, it's actually easier to find it. Uh, <laughs> like, so. Than Caitlin Johnston podcast? Yeah, back when I was a rogue journalist. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Also, probably best for, to just be on our Substack, right? Oh, the Substack newsletter will be the best because this is going to be fairly, it's not going to be a regular thing. I mean, it'll be regular enough, but like it's not going to be every day. So, yeah, maybe Caitlin one. Yeah, is the Substack newsletter. And if you get on that, then you'll get a, a little heads up every time we post one. So that's Caitlin Johnston's name, but 
all one word, but with a dot before the last three letters. Yeah. Caitlin Johnson dot one. All right. Shall we move on? Yeah. So Kelly Green asks, where do you get your news and how best to parse fact from fiction? And relatedly, Martin Diem asks, how do you keep yourselves informed? How much attention do you pay to traditional media? How can we see through the smoke screen? Well, surprisingly, we actually pay a lot of attention to mainstream media. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, because it's, uh, I mean, mainly our focus is on attacking propaganda. So uh, you have to know what, what the propaganda is. For to a attack start. the propaganda, you have to go where it, where the propaganda's at. Yeah, but uh, also, you know, there's a lot of factual stuff on the news. Often the way it's framed is disingenuous, but the the hard raw data is usually there. There may be some omissions of data. Yeah, that's generally how it is. They'll, they'll tell half-truths, they'll leave out stuff, but they won't tell, they won't fabricate whole cloth lies. They might regurgitate whole cloth lies from some intelligence agency, but they themselves will not make one up. Yeah. So like just it's, today, it's very it informative, actually. Once you you have a, like a fairly solid view of the world where you understand where, what all the players are attempting to do, what their agendas are and what they want, you can listen to mainstream news and, and glean the facts and see the spin as well. Right. Like just today, they came out with the news about how Egypt is building this enclosed area for potential refugees who flee Rafa. That's really important information. And it right. came out in the Wall Street Journal. You see stuff like that happen all the time. There, there's these these raw nuggets of information that you can use to begin to form your understanding. You, you will not form an accurate understanding if you just take the words that they're giving you verbatim. You need to develop some media literacy mm. and understand where the spin is happening and what they're not saying and what they're emphasizing and de-emphasizing, which the Gaza massacre has been really great for. Ah, it's been a masterclass in that. Yeah, everyone's been learning really fast. Really quickly. About how media bias works when they see, you know, <laughs> the six-year-old child walks into bullet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Headlines or whatever. <laughs> Civilians are killed by blasts. <laughs> in, Ru in Russia, in Ukraine, they're killed by Russian airstrikes. The Russians <laughs> drop the bombs on them and the bombs are Russian and the explosions are Russian and the Russian explosions kill, kill the civilians. You can never miss no. where, where these explosions are coming from and who actually did them and, and what they, their purpose was. But yeah, when they come from Israelis, they just kind of rain down from the sky. It's like weather, you know? It's, uh, it's just a little bomby out. <laughs> yeah, you should, you should probably take an umbrella because it's a bit bomby out. It's been really good for that. It's been really good for helping to inform people's literacy and the way they frame things, the way they talk about how Hamas was an atrocity committed by terrorists and they were murdered and they were butchered and they were slaughtered. And you never hear those sort of words used for this genocide that's right. happening. There was a bit of a study done. Yeah, uh, the intercept. Right. And, the, you know, slaughter was used a hundred something plus times or whatever when it was talking about October 7, but twice or something. When Yeah, it's, it's like a 50 to 1, 100 to 1 ratio or something like that, where they use these extremely emotive words when talking about what Hamas did, or as opposed to what the IDF is doing. And when you look at it, October 7 was one day and it's been 130 something days of 
Israel raining bonds down on children. It should be the opposite. It should be. It's because it's way more, and it's also urgent because the it's thing that happened in the right past. Yeah, yeah. No, no matter how bad you want to believe it was, it happened already. Right. It ha- it's done. It's no longer a threat. The thing that happened already happened. It's in the past. It's now months and months in the rear view. Whereas there's a thing that is currently happening. That That urgently needs to stop. Obviously, we need to make it known what is happening so it can stop. (laughs) That's the purpose of language. The purpose of language is not to bring up the past over and over and over again in order to facilitate more murderous outrage. That's exactly what they do, though. They're, They're always like, oh, so, guys... It turns out they put a baby in the oven several weeks ago. You remember that bad thing that happened? It was a little bit worse (laughs) than you heard. Right. And then much, much later. Oh, guys. Hey, guys, guess what? They were raping the women. There was a whole lot of raping happening. It was just rape. Months later, they'll they'll come out with things because there's nothing new bad happening that Hamas is doing. So they need to keep making up these things to make it it out to to act as though Hamas to create the emotional feeling that Hamas just did a new horrible thing. Right. Even though it's months in the past. Right. And they have to keep doing that. Oh, guys, UNRWA, UNRWA, turns out UNRWA is Hamas. Then UNRWA was part of uh, October 7th also. Right. And then after a while, they're going to have to say, oh, oh, and also uh, Hamas ate a baby. They ate a baby. <laughs> ate him up. While they were raping the baby. They were raping the baby and eating it simultaneously. It was terrible. <laughs> yeah. You know, and also three or four days or maybe a week or two later, you find out in the small print, eh, that didn't really happen. <laughs> That wasn't really true. Yeah, actually, we, we kind of, we, we looked into it. We can't really actually true. stand by that. <laughs> yeah. You guys. But every, all the Israel apologists will still keep, we still get people saying the beheaded babies and, and put a baby in an oven stuff, even though everyone has basically admitted that that's, a, that's complete bullshit. Today. Yeah, Israeli media, people in the Israeli government, they just, yeah. Yeah, and they use old numbers like 1,400 and... Yeah, 1,400 innocent civilians. Yeah, yeah. All killed by Hamas. Right. When you know every single part of that is false. Yeah. Oh, my God, it's... It's excruciating, isn't it? But that's how it works. And it has been a really good education into that. Mm -hmm. You know, like these uh, mindlessly repeating these slogans over and over and over again so that they become true. Yeah, our brains can't really tell the difference between the sensation of hearing something that you've heard a bunch of times before and the sensation of hearing something that you know to be true. Right. So that is employed over and over and over again. Deliberately. They know exactly what they're doing. Right. Well, it's actually psychological warfare. Yeah, it's very aggressive narrative manipulation. And there's people that are learning about it for the first time. Yeah. Even people who were just sort of, you know, a little bit shit lib, kind of on the left, you know, the Bernie Sanders Democrats and stuff that are able to see this and learn about it now. And a lot of young people. Yeah, so many young people, so many young eyes are getting open to this. It's a, Everyone's getting a real crash course in imperial propaganda. You know what I love about the kids too, though? They grew up on the internet and so they have been, they've, their understanding of trolling is way more sophisticated <laughs> yeah. than a millennial or a Gen Xer. You know, they, <laughs> they really understand all the ways that you can troll someone from concern trolling to, you know, all these different aspects of it. And so they recognise all of these, these strategies that are being used in this psychological warfare. Uh, but... With regard to where we get our news, um, 
Well, who's our favorite? We love Anti War is really good. Yeah. I was going to say, and Dave DeCamp's wrap up every day yeah. is essential viewing. Yeah. If you want to just stay on top of the day-to-day movements of the empire and what it's doing, if you're sort of a foreign policy follower or whatever, you've got to be on anti-war and Dave DeCamp is the most prolific writer there. He's really good. Yeah. But he also does these YouTubes where yeah. like whatever's being is fresh on the side, he'll, he'll give a little wrap up of it. Yeah. Consortium News is good. Oh, yeah. They're great. The Mint, Mint Press News. Mint Press, The Grey Zone. Counterpunch has some good stuff. Mainly to for the day-to-day news, it's mainstream and anti-war and individual reporters on social media. Right. Aaron Maté, Max Blumenthal. And yeah, analysis in this day and age, generally comes from individuals, doesn't it? Yeah, there's no one platform that you can say, yeah, they're all good. Yeah. Um, really. But, yeah, um, Mate's good. Blumenthal. Greenwald. Yeah. Ben Greenwald. Uh, ben Norton we like. Occasionally there is a good piece on The Intercept, like we were talking about that before. There's right. There have been really good on Israel-Palestine. They're not so good when there's other stuff going on, Russia, Syria, or whatever. Right, yeah. They're, they've been pretty good on, on Israel. They've got that James Gaza. Rising guy who... Yeah, and a bunch of them. A bunch of really kind of manipulative sleazes. Yeah. It's um, that oligarch money. Yeah. If you follow our Twitter, we tend to retweet the people that we're reading. Mm. And also every now and then we'll do a, like a, a tweet where we give everyone the, the handles of the people that we follow. Yeah. I haven't done that for a while, actually. We should yeah. do that soon. We could do that again. Yeah. Yeah, we have a we have a list of people. But yeah, anyway, what, what I was saying, Aaron Mate, Max Blumenthal, off, just off the top of my head, Ben Norton, Abby Martin. Oh, yeah. Rania Kalek. These are just the the top ones. Um Katie Halper, I'm on our Patreon. Katie Halper is really good for Israel, Palestine, and analysis. And yeah, a bunch of other people that will be embarrassed for not having mentioned. (laughs) (laughs) It's really hard hard to do in real time, but that's basically it. It's it's mainstream, combination of mainstream media, indie media, and social media. And you get a feel for it. You get a system down where now we don't even really think about it. The information just sort of flows in and and we synthesize it kind of intuitively. Right. We've got a news list that we use on on our Twitter that we is very good and you can kind of prune it as well. Yeah, That's a good just, thing to get started for yourself, I think. A yeah, Twitter you can make list. a Twitter list, just custom made, that has the people that you like on it and it helps you avoid the stupid algorithm that feeds you up Nazis and... <laughs> All sorts of fucking shit now. Cute kitten videos and whatever yeah. wor- worthless bullshit right. Elon Musk wants to show you. What's the other part of... Oh, oh, how, do you how do you parse fact, fact from fiction? Okay, well, that is a deep question. We've done some stuff on that actually recently, some articles about how you've got to actually, in terms of the empire and in terms of any manipulative entity, you need to keep an eye on their actions and turn the volume down on their words. If you can see with fresh eyes where all the resources are going, who happens to be benefiting from even accidents, Mm. thinking Nord Stream. <laughs> right. Oh, whoops a daisy. What happened there? Now, apparently no one did it, according to the, <laughs> to the Swedish inve- investigation. <laughs> yeah, we're just going to stop investigating this. <laughs> it's, 
I mean, that is stunning, isn't it? It's <laughs> one of the, it's up there with Exxon Valdez, like mm. in terms of environmental disaster. And it was a deliberate act of sabotage. And, and <laughs> like it destroyed Germany's economy for a bit. And like it was really fucking bad. It was mm. a really nasty act of terrorism. But just, yeah, watch, watch, watch where everything, watch the concrete movements of things, the things that don't have any narrative on them. When you see warships sailing into the Mediterranean, that's not a narrative. That's just a thing that is happening. That's an objective fact. When there are bombs being dropped on Gaza, that's an objective fact. You mute the narrative and you look at the actual material, physical movements of matter. (laughs) Watch where the money's going. Watch where the resources are going and watch where the weapons are going and how they're being used. Right. And sometimes that can require a little deeper dive too. Yeah, when you see them, it, it's it's really good to pay attention to because when you see them amassing war machine on the border of Russia and China, there's all these narratives about why they got to be doing that and why anything the other the the party does in response to war machinery on its border is this completely unprovoked act of violence. But if you're just muting the narratives and looking at what is actually happening, things get a lot clearer. Right, yeah. If you're keeping an eye on that, then you you will see a heat map of where things are warming up, which was why we had been screaming for years that there was going to be a war with Russia. Mm. Because there were so many provocations, buzzing on borders and and bringing in tanks and just lining up, staring sanctions, shredded treaties, all these things, nuclear posture reviews. We didn't think it would be with Ukraine in 2022. That caught us kind of by surprise that that was the the spark. Yeah. But uh, we were warning about it for years. Something's going to happen. Right, yeah. And there were a lot of people who did pick up on the Ukraine thing, like John Mearsheimer. <laughs> There's videos of him in 2015 saying, yeah, Ukraine's going to get wrecked. Right. We're leading Ukraine down the primrose path, and the end result is going to be Ukraine's going to get wrecked. Right. Now it is. The whole fucking generation of men has been destroyed. Yeah. Thrown into the meat grinder. For f- Fuck all in terms of Ukraine's benefit. Yeah. Shall we move on? Yeah. Westward One asks, across the world, are there any people you admire offering inspiration and hope? Oh, yeah. Well, I was just watching a little video of Code Pink in the calls. (laughs) (laughs) Aren't they great? Aren't they? In the halls of Congress? Yeah, probably. The Capitol building. Yeah. That's, um, that's where they're usually hounding people. Right. With Susan Sarandon there. Oh, cool. Singing Ceasefire Now. <sighs> just. Oh, yeah, I've seen, she's been, Medea Benjamin especially, has just been tearing through them lately. Right. Going after Pelosi and everything. And you, there's all these videos of her her and her, her Code Pink people hounding everyone, as the, this and that congressman as they're trying to make their way to the office or whatever. Yeah, that's so inspiring. Um, yeah, and that's how it should be. Those people should not have a moment's peace. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you don't get to just chill and ha- have a nice cup of tea while you're committing a genocide. <laughs> I just love that. They, you know, they've been code pink for years and years before Barbie, before the Barbie movie. I just wonder if you were uh, some sort of guy in Congress, if you were a senator, or you would have an instinctual revulsion towards the colour pink, wouldn't you, <laughs> after a while? Because if you saw, looked out into the audience and you saw someone in a pink T-shirt, you knew shit was going down. That's, right. that's how it goes. And then Barbie, the movie, came up and suddenly everyone is wearing pink. Everything is pink. <laughs> that was <laughs> They're probably a, a by twitchy it. couple of months for them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, so they're wonderful. 
Uh, I love, I love the young people. I'm constantly inspired by uh, what they're doing and how clearly they see things. And I love going on TikTok and looking up free Palestine hashtag and seeing what people are talking about and um, how they see things from all sorts of different angles as well. Like, Mm. you know, not just from the geopolitical, but like, you know, from the social and all the ways. So they're fantastic. That's so encouraging. Uh, The Palestinians. Palestinians are very inspiring. Fuck yeah. I mean, you know, courage is made there. I actually found out that, you know, that famous phrase, like uh, everything is made in China except courage is made in Palestine. Yeah. And it's often attributed to Anthony Bourdain. Well, apparently no one really knows where it came from. Oh. Someone tweeted that out, but like. (laughs) There's a lot of quotes like that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like in all of this tragedy and the awful things that we've all had to see and witness coming out of Gaza, there has also been these little vignettes of uh, just family and solidarity and love. Like one video that comes to mind, I I know this is quite a famous video and most people would have seen it, of the uh, father kissing his daughter one last time, opening her eyes so he could see into her eyes and calling her the soul of his soul. And that little girl, one of the details of that that really stood out to me was just how beautifully her hair was done. How caring. How caring and how loving that the people around her had been mm. to get her hair perfectly parted and brushed into two Because cur- she had curly buffs. hair too, right? Yeah. The, the girls, curly girls' hair can be really very time-consuming, Yeah, right? it can. Yeah, it takes in- a lot of time and... Um, and a lot of yelling and stuff, you know, it's mm. like little kids don't like getting their hair brushed at the best of times. And here, these people are living, at, you know, on the very edge of hell. There's bombings everywhere and most of them are not in their own home. Getting a, a comb out and getting a little girl to sit down in front of you while you, you get her hair in order is just such an act of love, you know. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, uh, moments like that, um, really something unique about the Palestinian people, uh, and and something I f- I I yearn for a love of home, you know, mm. like a real a sense of home. Mm. We're mostly displaced people, white people. Right, we don't have that indigenous connection to the land. Mm. We 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 feel like aliens generally because we are like we're we're not mm. we're not where we should be. Yeah, we always there's always like this sort of dissonance but just in the background we don't think about it most of the time but when we see indigenous people really living in relationship being having a relationship with the land yeah there's just this deep yearn that goes back hundreds of thousands of years in us and, right uh, yeah yeah i want to go to there <laughs> yeah and that's that is that yearn comes up in me a lot especially and we try to fill that hole with like fucking spirituality and religion and nonsense and it doesn't really, it's not the same thing. And real estate and things like that. Like, you know, they, we've got some really sick ideas money. about, yeah, like about turning property into money mm. and uh, it just r- rather than actually just a relationship with the land and knowing, you know, where the sun comes up and where the, the, the moon falls uh, and where, where is best for the the crops and when the wind's coming from a certain direction, what does that mean? What does that mean? You know, is is it going to be cooler that that afternoon or not? Like right. when the rains come, 
having that knowledge mm. about your own place. We don't place any emphasis on that, really. So there's so much lack of connection, I think, mm. in us, in white people. We, we just don't really understand what it is to be home. Mm. But the Palestinians do. And when you see them create home, you know, out of tarp and home, home and, and commu- community, they're really there's a really strong sense of community, even though their their community is rubble. Right, and community and um, beauty mm. in in just simple things like sharing a meal, a very simple humble meal, usually some mm. bread and perhaps some tomatoes. There's very little going around now, but they will present it perfectly and they will all sit with such patience and share it. So there's been lots of lessons for me to learn, really, uh, that have been nothing to do with geopolitics because in a lot of ways we... I mean, it has been shocking every day. I'm, I'm not going to say that we did know what Israel was. Yeah, they're, they're, we're not too cool to admit there's stuff that surprised us. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and probably every day. <laughs> no fucking way. There's no fucking way they did that. Oh, yeah, they totally did. Right. Like, did you hear about that deal where the guy they sent, the IDF sent a guy in handcuffs, a Palestinian guy, into a hospital and told them to evacuate because they're going to bomb the hospital because that's what they do. They he, bomb the hospital. He was the messenger. He was the messenger. They told they told him go into the hospital in in handcuffs and they said go into the hospital, tell them to evacuate because we're about to bomb it, and then come back out here. He did everything that they told him to do, and then when he came back out to them, they executed him on the spot. They just killed him. Fuck. He was no threat. He was in handcuffs. They just I guess didn't feel like dealing with him or whatever, so they just executed him according to eyewitnesses. What? But that's a war crime. But yeah, so the Palestinians have been, have been inspiring to me in so many different ways, um, in all the aspects. And that was surprising to me. That was something that I wasn't expecting a masterclass in how to live mm. when uh, encountering such grief and violence and ongoing slaughter and tragedy in amongst all of this. There has been this strong presence of family and love and community that's just, you know, kind of underpins everything. And this belief in something greater than themselves as well. I think that that very much yeah they really embody their spirituality it's very much a thing for them it's yeah. not just this nifty little feel-good thing that they check off in their mental box they check off a little mental box in their minds that says oh yeah i believe that thumbs up to jesus or whatever right no no it's their life yeah it's it colors the way they talk and everything they say and the way they live their life from moment to moment Mm, yeah, it really does give them a lot of strength and a context to put all of this agony in. They understand that their lives are fleeting. I mean, and that's just the truth. Mm. Very few of them will enjoy an older age and yet the struggle continues and that they're doing this not just for themselves or their current family, but they're doing this, you know, for future generations as well. So, yeah, I'm really inspired by the Palestinians. I'm also really inspired by the anti-Zionist Jews. Oh, they've been they've been the superstars, really. They've been so good. I mean, yeah, there's courage and there's courage. Yeah, and, and they're just so forceful about it and articulate and they make arguments so incisively. And insightfully. Yeah. From the inside, I think, of the, the mind virus, you know, they, they understand what particularly the diaspora has been brought up with 
like mm. the stories that they've been told and the reasons they've been told why Israel is so important. And uh, they, they can really shine lights on all the different aspects of that story and why it doesn't hold water. Mm. Yeah, Jewish Voice for Peace have been so inspiring. Really have been, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and other, other groups like them, they've been great. And just the individuals, the Mates. The Mates. I mean, yeah, like we could probably talk about Medea um, Benjamin. Medea <laughs> Benjamin. I think that's you know. why Medea Benjamin has been such a pistol, like even more so than usual lately. She really seems to take this. She has a personal vested interest in bringing this to a halt. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think that's what it is. Is that it's personal mm, for yeah. Jewish people? Yeah. This is like <laughs> don't don't do that in my name. Right. Well, and you know, and don't put my safety at risk as well. Right. For the the real risk of actual anti-Semitism taking hold, and you know, Jewish people being held accountable for these heinous war war crimes Mm. Um, because there has been this deliberate conflation of Zionism and Judaism. That Israel is built on. Yeah, and, and and they insist that what they're doing is in the Jewish name. <laughs> it's not, mm. and it's very dangerous to say that it is. Yeah, they're flying a star of David over these mass atrocities, these crimes against humanity, while insisting that their actions are not separable from the Jewish faith and the Jewish people. It is that's going to turn public opinion against Jewish people in a way that could wind up being dangerous someday. Yeah. If I was a Jewish person, I would be, I would really take offense to that and I would do everything I can to stop it. Right. And a lot of them are, and they're doing a really brilliant job of it. And in the face of probably a lot more public backlash than we get, like we don't really have to fight with our families about it or anything. People we've known our whole lives. Yeah. It's not this thing that our community is built around. Yeah. Or this third rail that you just never, ever talk about, you know? Right. Um, It's a really brave and courageous thing to do. Yeah, they're pushing against so much more than we are and with such fire. Yeah, yeah. Such passion. Yeah, and efficacy. Yeah, so, yeah, it's very effective. The the things that they have to say are just, they're better at it than we are. Right, Or anyone else. They're just very, very effective in in their arguments. Yeah. Uh, Shall we wrap? Yeah, okay. All right. Well, that was fun. Yeah. Um, yes. So again, a few days. Yeah. Post Assange. I don't know what will happen there. Yeah. We'll have a lot to talk about, I guess, next time. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully good things. Yeah. Okay. All right, folks. Bye. Bye.